Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. In the last decade of Elizabeth I's reign, Many of the besetting preoccupations of earlier decades had abated. Mary Queen of Scots had finally been executed in 1587. The Spanish Armada had been defeated in 1588, albeit more by the wind and the waves than the English, and the question of Elizabeth's marriage had been shelved. And yet, these were years of extraordinary challenge to the Crown and to the country when the person at the helm was an elderly and apparently indecisive woman. Although the poets and painters of Elizabeth's court were busy creating the image of a perfect goddess of a queen, Gloriana, opinion on the ground seems to have been markedly different. In the early 17th century, Bishop Goodman remarked that the people were generally very weary of an old woman's government. So what can we make of Elizabeth I's last decade and her legacy? How have immediate histories of her reign continued to shape the popular narrative right up to the present day? And what should her reputation rightly be? To discuss these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Alex Guider, Associate Professor in Early Modern History at the University of Oxford, and John Walsh Fellow and Tutor at Jesus College. Dr. Guider is the author of, among other things, The Earl of Essex and Late Elizabethan Culture. Dr. Guider, Alex, thank you so much for joining me. We're here at St. Cross College, Oxford, where we're going to talk about Elizabeth's fin de siècle. And it's such an interesting period, that last decade of Elizabeth's life, isn't it? She dies, of course, in 1603. And many people have referred to that last decade as her second reign. John Guy, in his book recently, famously called it the Forgotten Years. And it's certainly true that a number of the threats that we most associate with Elizabeth, the Armada, perhaps, 1588, Mary Queen of Scots, are over. Do you think of this decade being a kind of new phase of her rule? What do you make of it? The sort of notion that we divide historical reigns up into particular periods is always going to have its critics. It can be a useful way of thinking about historical change. But I think 
the idea that the 1590s is a coherent decade actually is stretched back to the period from 1584 onwards. And that is when Elizabeth is finally forced to make a formal alliance with the Dutch, which she does in 1585, which puts her officially at war with Spain. And the whole character of the rest of Elizabeth's reign is dominated by this overarching fact that she is at war with the most powerful monarchy in the world. And this is accompanied not only with the logistical problems of being at war, it's a war that hasn't ended by the time that she dies it's ended by her successor but there are a whole other host of political problems socio-economic problems and issues that Elizabeth faced that she hasn't had to face in the earlier decades of her rule so what are the sort of chief challenges to the country at this time social and economic problems you mentioned the 1590s in particular sees the worst harvest failures since the middle of the 16th century. There are periods of drought in 1593, for example, followed by torrential rains in the following two years. And there are periods of actual dearth where people are starving to death. This leads to a lot of social tension. Lots of Elizabeth's subjects aren't simply able to access enough food and that brings about the conditions of social unrest. At the same time, there's mass conscription for Elizabeth's armies, which are fighting in different frontiers. They're fighting in the Netherlands, they are fighting in France, and from the mid-1590s onwards, Elizabeth's fighting a huge and very draining war in Ireland. And this means that lots of soldiers are being conscripted from local communities and being taken into these armies. And there's also a problem of soldiers then deserting, coming back and filling the streets of London and other communities with people who are perceived to be a problem for the state, who don't have enough to eat and are seen certainly by the social elites as liable to rebel or be disruptive. And there are very significant riots in London in 1595 and protests against immigrants that are caused by this sense that there's growing poverty. How much do you think Elizabeth knows or cares about these problems that are facing her subjects? It seems as if she doesn't. When there is a very serious kind of apprentice riot in London in 1595 at Tower Hill, Elizabeth declares a period of martial law sets up a somebody called a provost marshal who theoretically has the power to hang anybody without trial. And what she does is she retreats to the court and she restricts access to the court apart from to a pretty kind of narrow political elite we know from her speeches that she makes to parliament a very famous speech she makes to her final parliament in 1601 that's known as the golden speech where she talks about how much her subjects love her but she pays very little attention to the social and economic grievances that her mps have been making in this parliament that's been quite a kind of rambunctious one so from elizabeth's point of view what's going on in the 1590s then (laughs) She does travel. She continues actually fairly aggressively on these progresses that she likes to go on, but she doesn't get a particularly realistic picture of her subjects' lives. She visits Norwich. The people of Norwich might be required to come and cheer her and give her gifts. So from Elizabeth's perspective, she probably has very little kind of connection to the lives and the poverty of ordinary people. Her concerns are really about the direction of how she maintains her authority in a state of war where she can't physically be directing generals on the field. Tensions in the court... And a sense that, as you hinted at earlier, this is a period of political change where many of her older friends and counsellors are dying and are, to a certain extent, being replaced by a younger generation, but to a certain extent are not. And she faces a new kind of dynamic in the court in the 1590s as well that tests, I think, her political skills. Yeah, so we have people like 
Leicester dying mm. and Walsingham and Hatton and all these people that we're very familiar with have been very important to her up until that point. Yeah. And some commentators described it as having decayed into a gerontocracy yeah. and there's this sense that it's being presided over by this increasingly aged queen, her increasingly elderly chief minister. I don't know if you think that was fair. <laughs> what do you think this ageing of the queen meant for the court, for those who wanted to establish their reputation were up and coming perhaps? There are two very famous new favourites of the Queen who do have a very prominent role in the 1590s. One of those is Walter Rawley, who has made his way at court really off the back of being very handsome and very brilliant. And then there's Robert Deverick, second Earl of Essex, who is of the ancient nobility. He's the Earl of Leicester's stepson. And they both occupy at first positions as courtiers and personal favourites of the Queen, and then do achieve more substantial positions in and out of power after that. And Essex in particular becomes a privy councillor, Rawley doesn't. But at the same time, as he said, through the three, you know, Hatton, Walsingham, and her great love of her life, I suppose, the Earl of Leicester, die between 1586 and 1591. And the Privy Council, which control the day-to-day running of the country and the administration, shrinks in size. And her chief minister, Lord Burley, is riddled with gout and desperate to retire, or at least he says he is, and certainly to pass on his political mantle to his son, Robert. But Elizabeth won't let him retire. He stages a famous pageant at his great country house Tybalt's where there's a sort of show of a hermit saying that all they want to do is just stay and sequester themselves and Elizabeth's response is that well the hermit's needed so yeah but he yeah get back to court yes so Burley does work flat out for his whole life really until he dies in 1598. One other way of characterizing this last decade is of a great rivalry between Mm. Robert Burley's son and Robert Defro, Earl of Essex, who will talk more and on. But yeah. do you think that's the case? Yes, it's contested. And there are lots of Tudor history used to be about whether or not there was faction, or so faction at Henry VIII's court, but the faction at Elizabeth's court. And those sort of debates have fallen out of favour. So what I'd say was there was intense rivalry that does characterise always the moments of concord between Essex and Cecil. And they have very different sorts of personalities and want to present themselves in different kinds of ways. But yes, you can clearly and certainly if you read the personal correspondence of Essex and his friends all the way through, even when he and Cecil are supposedly working together on a military campaign and so forth, that they're mocking Cecil. But they're also mocking this idea that the Cecils are relative upstarts, but they have acquired enormous wealth by this point. And they're still building these grandiose palaces. And the Earl of Essex is in debt and gets further and further in debt, putting his money into military campaigns. And that there's a sense that the Cecils do want to dominate the court and have really feathered their own nests, which is true under Elizabeth. Now, I want to ask you a couple more questions to think about the circumstances of this time, because we know that Mary Queen of Scots is dead. This is a great threat to Elizabeth in terms of thinking about the succession. But it's interesting in this period, I imagine, because it would have become evident that Elizabeth wasn't going to have any natural children. The question of marriage has been taken off the table, Mm. at least in a way that's going to produce an heir. Mm. So what are the worries about the succession during this decade? What do they look like? It used to be thought that after the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, 
Elizabeth had a very clear heir to the throne. It was her cousin, James VI of Scotland. And James has lots of attractive attributes. First of all, he's male. He gets married in the early 1590s and he produces a male heir in 1594 and he's a Protestant. And if you're a central member of the Elizabethan regime, that's exactly what you've been hoping for. But there were quite a lot of problems in the way of that. First of all, it baffles Elizabeth's subjects, but she refuses to actually name James as her heir. There's a big sort of question mark as to whether or not on her deathbed she might have signaled by touching her head that she names James as her heir. And certainly the Privy Council tell the foreign ambassadors that she's signaled that she wants the King of Scots to be her heir. But the general sense is that she doesn't have a name and heir, even during the 1590s, when the dilemma of her female Catholic cousin has gone away. So with that, there is also, it leaves the succession question quite open. And lots of Elizabethans, even though James's accession with hindsight is peaceable, and he's acclaimed with great celebration in 1603. But right until Elizabeth's death, everybody is worried that there's going to be some kind of civil war or possibly foreign invasion. So you can see when the Queen is dying, they are closing the ports, they're putting Catholics in the guard, the council is trying to root out potential sources of sedition. And this is really because it is greatly feared that there might be an internal Catholic uprising and that the King of Spain might put a military backing to the claims of his own sister, to the throne of England. And one of the strangest aspects of the succession crisis in the 1590s is that actually a claim that the Spanish monarchy are the rightful heirs of the throne of England is made forcefully by some English Catholics and it's taken very seriously. There's one other person that's often talked about in this decade as a possible heir, which is Arbella Stuart. Mm, How seriously do you think Elizabeth considered her as a successor? Elizabeth makes sure that she's pretty closely guarded. And so she is talked about as a potential successor. One of the problems with trying to understand anybody's attitudes toward the succession is Elizabeth essentially outlaws public discussion of it. So a lot of the discussion of the succession is done in kind of covert and underhand ways or through. Actually, Shakespeare's Richard II, for example, is a really interesting play that explores whether or not a rightful king descends through the bloodline or is king through ability and virtue. There's no law, of course, governing succession either. But there are a few treatises written in the 1590s about the succession, and none of them seem to take Arbella Stewart's claim that seriously. There are other plausible male heirs, and the fear if you're an English Protestant by that point is really the claim of a Catholic, a Spanish Catholic claim. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Henry VIII, of course, had ruled out the Scottish Mm, line, and we don't see the possibility of Margaret's descendants Mm. earlier in the century, but do come to the fore at the end of the century. It stimulates a lot of quite interesting kind of ideas of political thinking, actually. This question of, does Henry VIII's will, as ratified by Parliament, is that valid when it comes to thinking about the Stuart claim? Now, if you were an opponent of Mary, Queen of Scots, you'd say no. If you're not an opponent of James, then you actually have to override that problem, the problem that the Stuart line has been excluded from the throne by Henry VIII's will and by Act of Parliament. 
And actually, that is what happens under James. The council proclaimed that he is descended by a blood and that only blood right is the true means of succession. But until the Act of Settlement of 1701, because there's no Act of Parliament that defines, or no specific law that defines how the Crown should descend, as opposed to a piece of private property, there are lots of competing ways of arguing of who the legal heir might be. So interesting. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare So the other thing I suppose that we need to bear in mind in this last decade is that it's not that the Spanish Armada happens in 1588 and that's it. Mm, (laughs) There's certainly a great deal of threat still hanging over England. No, absolutely. Philip II is determined to stop Elizabeth helping the Dutch and by this point he is determined to harm her. And he builds up, attempts to build up his navy again. And there are various naval ventures that sometimes get called subsequent armadas that are sent and are sighted in the waters around England that cause lots of concern. But Philip is also, at this point, he engages in the French wars of religion on the side of the Catholic League, who are fighting the claimant of the throne, Henry of Navarre, who is before 1593, a Protestant. And that involves Philip II in this extraordinary kinds of war with the Northwestern European powers, the Dutch and Henry IV and Elizabeth I, who create a kind of alliance in the first part of the decade. It looks as if he is determined to destroy, if you're the Earl of Essex, you say, all three straits in Christendom. It looks as if he's got this insatiable thirst to suppress all powers and rule everywhere. So it's both threatening, but also it confirms the opinions of those hawkish people who have long been saying that the Spanish king is a tyrant who can't be trusted and, and wants to rule everything. 
And of course, the English are making war on the Irish in this period as well. Yes, although the Irish are, of course, Elizabeth's subjects, according to Elizabeth. <laughs> yes, Ireland is under Elizabeth a source of almost endemic conflict. And by the 1590, a rising in Northern Ireland in Ulster that's led by Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone and Hugh Roe O'Donnell almost causes Elizabeth to lose. It's called the Nine Years' War. Tyrone appeals to his Catholicism, he appeals to the Pope and he appeals to Philip II and then later Philip to support him as a Catholic ruler and he throws off his allegiance to Elizabeth. And Tyrone's rebellion is very threatening because he's a much more able military commander and he has a wider set of alliances than any previous noble who's revolted before has. And they inflict several humiliating defeats on Elizabeth's armies, including the Battle of the Yellow Ford, where 2,000 of Elizabeth's troops are killed. And that's the largest military defeat the Irish ever have over the English. So it looks at a point as if the Tudor monarchies claim to rule Ireland as kings or queens of Ireland may be lost. And that war is still going on right until Elizabeth's death. Now, you've written brilliantly about the Earl of Essex, and I would like to spend some time talking yeah. a bit more about him. You mentioned him, but can you give us a bit more of a sense of who he was and what his relationship with Elizabeth? Yes, thank you. This leads into a question we were talking about earlier, which is that Essex is a later generation of courtier. So his father, the first Earl of Essex, was a nobleman who died rather hideously on campaign in Ireland trying to establish a plantation there. And Essex becomes a ward of Burley. And he is a very highly educated nobleman. He spends quite a long time at Trinity College, Cambridge. And he develops a really strong sense of his own virtue, both intellectual and military virtue. He has a very strong sense of what a nobleman and a statesman should be. But he is also comes to court as a favourite of Elizabeth just after Walter Rawley. He's just a gentleman, not a member of the ancient nobility. And the two of them are seen as Elizabeth's new favourites. But they haven't, like Leicester and Hatton, grown up with Elizabeth. Essex has a very different kind of personality to Leicester, and his relationship with the Queen is very different. Leicester took Elizabeth's arguments with him, her furious rows with him, he did things she didn't like and swallowed it. Whereas Essex is a much more kind of fiery temperament, but he's also possessed of a sense of his own destiny, which is that he wants to be a great statesman and military hero. He's convinced that he's virtuous. He's surrounded, he must have been exceptionally charming, but he's surrounded by incredibly well-educated advisors who tell him he's virtuous and the most virtuous person they've ever met and the most brilliant person. You know, Edmund Spencer writes of him as the whole world's wonder in a poem. So he's got all this kind of adulation and he's seen as a bright hope for the future. And therefore, when he falls out with the Queen, when he went on military campaign, he disobeys her orders, which often inevitably has to happen. When she dresses him down in the way she's used to with her other courtiers and nobles, he takes it exceptionally personally and refuses to accept those dressing downs. And that makes their personal relationship increasingly fractious. It's so interesting, the intangibility of charisma. Yes. People in the past yeah. who are lauded in that way yeah. must have had something that it's almost impossible to access through the sources that remain. I think that's right. I think it's very hard for us to get the appeal of chivalry and the notion of 16th century honour. Quite a lot of modern scholars just cannot see Essex as anything other than a complete fool. But he really wasn't taken as that by those who met him. He was seen as a danger, a threat by his political rivals. But he was loved and revered 
revered and he makes lots of connections with French noblemen who feel the same way so he was obviously incredibly charming too and who do you think was calling the shots I remember reading one Mm. characterization of him which was that he's a sort of toy boy who's bullying this pathetically older woman who fought for Mm. his affection that's would be insulting to both Essex <laughs> and Elizabeth. Might think that. From Elizabeth's perspective, the idea that she's in love with him isn't true, I don't think. The idea that she has this sort of sexual passion for him. He is the most preeminent nobleman. He's been Lester's stepson. And he almost of his birthright deserves some kind of prominent role in the polity. She's used to having favourites, and he's you know, the ideal master of the horse, which had been Lester's role, a courtier who is in charge of the Queen's stables but rides with her. So he has this role at court as her companion, but it's not necessarily one based on romantic love or physical affection. He feels very strongly that it's England's destiny to be at war with Spain and that we can't stop the war with Spain until a proper peace can be achieved, the peace where England can guarantee that Spain won't attack again and that becomes his overarching ambition really and because there are other statesmen at court particularly the Cecils come to stand for this at the end of the reign who do think that peace with Spain might be achievable this creates a kind of political rift between Essex and other courtiers and Elizabeth somehow caught in the middle of all of that so you mentioned that she dresses him down and Mm. he does not respond well to it what happens next there are various incidents all the way through his military career but the most significant incident comes after a failed naval campaign to intercept the Spanish treasure fleet and perhaps to establish a base on the Iberian territory there's a series of strategic problems there Essex ends up in a huge argument with the Queen about his alleged disgrace and there are a series of encounters and the most famous one is from William Camden where he's said to have put his hand on his sword and said that he wouldn't he talked like this he wouldn't accept such speech from Henry VIII himself now we don't know if that incident is true because we only know about it from Camden but the sense is that he writes letters to Elizabeth that we do have authentic copies of saying you can't treat me like this princes can or rulers can get things wrong and I know my duty to my conscience so he's increasingly concerned that Elizabeth has a kind of arbitrary attitude to him and to the court and that she's listening to evil counsel. And then he is sent off in 1598 to Ireland and again there's a misstand. Mm. We have this wonderful story of him bursting into her rooms yeah. at Nonsuch. The Irish campaign is interesting because he's quite right to be aggrieved in the campaign in the Azores in 1597 Essex's military leadership is woeful but in Ireland he goes to put down the rebellion in Ireland and has this hugely capacious commission that includes the ability to make peace if he wants to and to come back to England and leave a deputy in charge so this is all in his commission but he also argues that the only way that Tyrone can be put down or suppressed is if he's allowed to establish a base at Lofoyle, which is in Ulster. And it seems as if the council, or Cecil in particular, diverts the pinnaces that he needs and the provisions that he needs to Dublin instead. So right from the start, the strategy he wants is hindered. 
And he has reasons to therefore think that he's being done over by the people he increasingly thinks are his enemies at court. Opinion will be divided on this, but I think John Guy and I both agree that it seems as if there is certainly no goodwill towards the success of his campaign. And so getting increasingly desperate, he makes the mistake of creating a truce with Tyrone after a discussion that no one else is witness to very dramatically. They talk together on their horses with no one listening to what they say. And then they agree a temporary truce after that. And so that he can be the first person to tell Elizabeth of what he's agreed with Tyrone, Essex comes back very quickly as possible to England with a small group of men to explain what he's done. Elizabeth has, meanwhile, been sending him furious letters saying stay in post, but he comes back and he comes to the court and he bursts in very early into her bedchamber before she's got her makeup on uh, and before she's dressed, which is the ultimate in, you know, the inner sanctum and no one is allowed to see Elizabeth in this state apart from her ladies and throws himself at her feet and and from then on, although at this particular point she treats him gently because presumably she might be quite afraid, from that point his political career is over and he's placed under a series of different forms of house arrest, stripped of office, publicly humiliated in a kind of species of show trial. And he unsurprisingly doesn't react very well to that mm. and what we must talk about of course is his revolt of mm. 1601. Tell us what happened but also what do you think he hoped to achieve? It's a very odd episode. It's difficult to get under the skin of it because of the way that it's presented as a rebellion. And of course, at his treason trial, the prosecution wants to suggest that Essex wanted to be king himself, King Robert I. What it's clear is that he had been plotting for some time since his disgrace to try to launch some kind of coup on the court itself to take the Queen into his power, to get rid of the people he thought were poisoning the Queen's ear against him, and to declare James VI and first in Scotland, and to get that publicly authorised. And that way he'd be a kind of kingmaker, and he would hope to be first minister in the next reign. And for some time, Essex had been writing to James VI of Scotland covertly, and encouraging and fueling James's real concerns that he might not be Elizabeth's heir because not only will she not name him as his heir but James hates the Cecils because he deems them responsible particularly William Cecil for the death of his mother so James listens to Essex and James who doesn't ever fight a battle goes to the Scottish Parliament in 1600 and actually the Convention of Estates kind of parliaments and actually asks for money in case he has to fight a war to take the throne. So James believes what he's being told as far as we can tell that there's a kind of coup to deprive him of his title. It gets quite complicated. The Privy Council trying to build a kind of treason charge against Essex and then they eventually at a crucial moment where Essex is really trying to set up some kind of links with the ambassador of the King of Scotland and tells James explicitly that there's plot against him and he's going to take some kind of action. So James knows Essex is going to act and there's going to be a coup against the court. To stop that from happening, the Privy Council try and chivy Essex out and they call him to come and explain himself. They know something's going on. And this causes enormous amount of panic and Essex has a discussion with his most intimate friends and acquaintances and he decides that he is going to appeal to his popularity in London. He's been a kind of public hero, celebrations of some of his military victories and he is going to appeal to the public and tell them that there's this plot to sell the 
crown of England to Spain and that Walter Raleigh and Robert Cecil are in league with the Spanish monarchy and to come with popular support to the Queen. And this backfires terribly. He takes to the streets of London with around 300 followers, shouting God save the Queen and shouting about this plot. And the Londoners are pretty baffled. He gets a few cheers, but the city's defences are levied again and he comes back to Essex House. There's a brief siege and then he surrenders. So it's really incredibly pathetic and sometimes it's a scuffle I think two people die by accident or pistol shot it's hardly a rebellion that threatens the court in any way so let's fast forward a couple of years and we are going to kill Elizabeth off as it were I mean showing great metal even to the end Mm. you know her lines about saying the word must not be used to princes Mm. seem to speak to her character don't they Yes, in 1602, she's entertaining the Italian ambassador in fluent Italian and looking spectacular, certainly in in her clothing. So she does actually maintain an extraordinary level of mental acuity right until near her death. It's thought, and we don't know quite how long she can't speak for before she actually dies. But yes, she's been impressively held out against the vicissitudes of ill health. You very tactfully implied there that perhaps what she looked like, apart from her clothing, wasn't quite so pleasant. And of course, one of the things that's been suggested is that in her portraiture, we Mm. see this mask of youth. What do you think of that? It must be true. Recently, a portrait of Elizabeth that does show her as as wrinkled has been, not exactly discovered, but the importance has been made of it. The most famous portraits of Elizabeth from the 1590s are of her looking like a sort of icon with a completely unlined face, extraordinary clothing, and they're more symbolic pictures than accurate representations of her. And that image of Elizabeth becomes grandiose as her natural body ages. But most of those portraits are not actually commissioned. It's often thought that this is Elizabeth's court putting out this image of the Queen to impress her subjects. But the most famous of those images of Elizabeth looking extraordinarily regal and ageless and timeless were actually commissioned by her own courtiers. There's a very famous portrait of Elizabeth, the Ditchley portrait of her standing on the land with a fan, looking as if she owns it. And that was commissioned by her former champion, Sir Henry Lee, when she was visiting his country house after his retirement and the other famous portrait is the rainbow portrait, which we think, which is a, a portrait of Elizabeth dressed in the most extraordinary gown. It's got a serpent on one arm, probably representing wisdom. It's covered in eyes and ears and mouths. Does that mean the Privy Council? Is that, some people say those are spies. I think it's probably representative of the fact that she rules with counsel. She rules with advice of other people and wearing the most incredible jewels. That portrait was, we think, almost certainly commissioned by Robert Cecil when Elizabeth visited him on one of her entertainments. And so these pictures are commissioned, we think, very often by noblemen and courtiers who are trying to flatter the Queen or present her in a way they think she'll want to be presented. And they're really more about a kind of relationship between the Queen and courtiers than images that have any kind of propagandic function, I think. That's a really helpful corrective. At the end of her life, we know she has this extraordinary funeral cortege Mm. and the procession is very great. 
But what did people make of her? I remember the phrase from Bishop Goodman saying that people were generally very weary of an old woman's mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Was that a general attitude? Obviously, lots of the evidence that we take from, for example, literature and pageantry suggests that lots of courtiers are writing poems saying Gloriana live forever and having these pictures commissioned and still writing poetry saying how much they're in love with Elizabeth. But at the same time, there does seem to be an increasing sense of people being unguarded with their weariness with the rule of an ageing woman. It's obviously a deeply misogynist society. And if you couple that with, as you were suggesting, an ageing court and a country that's at war and that's experiencing all these problems, the projection of senses of kinds of anxiety and dissatisfaction onto a ruler who's been on the throne for so long are perhaps inevitable. And I think it's the French ambassador who says, oh, the English will never be ruled by a woman again. But this is something that James VI and first plays up to when he comes to the throne. And one of his favourite metaphors is to talk about himself as a husband. Also, he has his own children, so he's a husband in two senses. And that gendered rhetoric of kingship is something James uses all the time to show the difference between the reign of a baron, female, aged queen, and a young male ruler with sons. So let's think about how Elizabeth's reputation was changing in the 17th century. You've been working on... William Camden, you mentioned Mm. earlier, his Annals of the Reign of Elizabeth, the first history of Mm. Elizabeth. So yes, it's the first major history of Elizabeth's reign. It's written in Latin, and Camden never wanted it to be translated. He describes it as written with complete impartiality and scrupulous concern for the source material. And so lots of subsequent scholars have said this work is also the first true history of Elizabeth's reign. And it's the first one where a historian's really looking properly at sources. What we're now realising is that actually these are all kind of tropes taken from classical historiography. That if you are Polybius or Livy or Tacitus, you say, I'm writing the truth, but mean sort of something impartial, not what we would suggest, factual accuracy or truth in a a very kind of forensic sense. And Camden's Annals sets up a series of narratives about Elizabeth that have been quite enduring and I think very different from the ways that academic scholars think about her reign today. So what does Camden say about Elizabeth? How does he characterise her reign? Camden characterises her reign as a glorious triumph, not without its difficulties. And the way he balances culpability for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, is a great kind of feat of obfuscation. <laughs> but overall, it sets the seeds and the tone of the reign of that we have a sense of today, standing out against Spain, being an enthusiastic military leader. And actually, the earliest English translations of Camden make much more out of the idea that Elizabeth was very popular with her subjects and make more out of her desire to be seen as some kind of warrior when she was actually quite reluctant to get involved in continental warfare. In the 1620s, you get a series of tracts of heroes like Raleigh and Essex, written as if ventriloquising their ghosts, lamenting the state of England today and in comparison to the state of England in the 1590s. And they are constructions to criticise the foreign policy and religious policies of James I and then Charles I, yes. So the question I have for you is, this image that we have, is this something that develops in Elizabeth's lifetime or does it post-date her? Is it a construction that's put on her at a later period? When does she become this kind of paragon of all the virtues, really? Well, it's partly a product of the court culture. 
Elizabeth has quite a different court in comparison to that of male monarch. If you want to get the attention of the Queen, you can't do so in the way that you could at Henry VIII's court by being a young gentleman of the chamber and room of the stool and all the rest of it. Elizabeth's bedchamber is solely staffed by ladies and her privy chamber has very few male members. So, so a lot of the cult of Elizabeth and actually the great sort of portrait, the iconic portraiture of Elizabeth comes from the 1580s and 1590s. Lots of the poems celebrating Elizabeth as Gloriana come from that period of her reign where she's not going to get married and it's often written by individuals who want for a particular reason to get the Queen's attention. But it also intersects with Elizabeth's own image of herself. She presents herself in grandiose terms in her own speeches. And I think that in particular, the notion that Elizabeth is well-loved, which is taken up in the 17th century because the Stuart monarchs are being told they're unpopular. But the idea that she's well-loved comes from Elizabeth's speeches. It's exacerbated in the 17th century for quite polemical reasons, but it's become, and I think an exciting part of them, in ways that I don't know if Elizabeth's subjects at the time would necessarily have recognised. It's interesting, isn't it? The reputation that Elizabeth has still regularly in surveys of who is the best monarch mm. we've had, Elizabeth yeah. comes top. And yeah. this always seems to me rather curious. Mm. <laughs> Once you've had a good look at her yeah. reign, why do you think her reputation has developed as it has? It's partly because we have such a strong visual image of her in the same way that we have of Henry VIII. They are the first monarchs whose images, I think, would be recognisable to a vast proportion. I hope a vast proportion of the public, maybe not. She's a very good speechwriter and very good at making speeches that people then wrote down and have been preserved that have also suggested extraordinary kind of political talents. So I suppose it's the length of her reign, it's her own writings. It's from an academic historical point of view, we tend to think about a lot about what was her government actually doing? What did it feel to be a subject? And what about the church? And we haven't talked about the church. There are so many kind of political problems Elizabeth faces, but her personality clearly was extraordinary as well. And so I think that she has this fascination for all those kinds of reasons. But I think the courtly culture that then becomes a polemical narrative in the 17th century has just had its enduring power. So what's fascinating about that is that some of her popularity comes from, frankly, her being an underdog. It's a very mm-hmm. British thing, isn't yeah. it? Here she is. Oh, she was against the odds. And yeah. therefore, she's popular. Yeah academic ideas of Elizabeth's reign and the popular image of Elizabeth's reign seem to have diverged quite significantly. Yes, hugely. I think if you look at most academic scholarship, certainly since the 1990s, it's focused a lot more on Elizabeth's councillors and statesmen and their dilemmas rather than the Queen herself. And whether or not you think that Elizabeth was a good ruler or not, which is not actually a question we tend to in this kind of sense when teaching our students, the problems of the later 16th century, the question of the unsettled succession, which causes such anxiety amongst her subjects, the problem and the dilemma of going to war or not. If you're a Catholic, the horrible kind of butchery of Catholic priests, that is a kind of persecution that that gets far less attention than the burning of Protestants and Elizabeth's sister Mary, and is incidentally almost completely written out of Camden's annals. Those sorts of questions have engaged academic scholars a lot more of late, and it is at odds with the general kind of sense of Elizabeth's virtues and popularity. And I can't think of another figure in British history where there is such divergence between the public's perception and that of academic scholars. Yeah, We are in 
this jubilee month marking <laughs> the platinum jubilee of Elizabeth II, when she's almost three decades older than Elizabeth I ever became, what from your work about reputation and legacy do you think we can learn from Elizabeth I's reign that might guide us today? I think that the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations are already constructing that legacy, that the fundamental deficiencies that the Queen was by certain some quarters thought to have in the 1990s after Princess Diana's death have seemed to be generally written out of a narrative that admires the Queen for qualities of her character that the majority of us have never experienced because we've not met her. So I think that notion of kind of the legacy creation and also the very, very careful managing of image is already setting in motion what I imagine will be a fairly narrated figure in the future. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.